Okay, welcome back to the AC Hive podcast, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague. I'm a director at ArcDocs and co-founder of the AEC Hive. I'm joined by John Egan, who's my fellow co-founder. John, you want to say hi to everybody? Yeah, hi, everyone. Uh, John Egan from BIM Launcher here, co-founder at um, AEC Hive. So we're very excited today to be joined by Tom Bartley, who's the co-founder and CEO at Barbell. Tom has a long history in this, the built environment sector with BIM and other things, and so we're very excited to, to hear what Tom's doing. Tom, do you want to give a quick introduction to everybody about yourself, you know, where you've come from, you know, what you're doing at the moment? Of course. Thank you, Ralph. Yes, my name's Tom Bartley. I am, as you say, a co-founder and CEO of Barbell. Uh, my background is that I have an engineering doctorate in BIM for highway projects, and I was very much involved with an infrastructure consultancy in the UK, and we were starting in 2012 with what's this BIM thing, and we, we do roads, so so how does that apply to us? And over the, the years that followed that, we I really tracked the, the, the evolution of the, the BIM journey in the UK. And in 2018, I started my own company, Barbell. We are uh, inspired by how digital uh, sectors work, and, and really what we're all about is bringing inspiration from how the software industry works into more traditional sectors. Primarily, we're a document editor, but we're inspired by things like GitHub and agile ways of working, and we want to get people collaborating in a more open and transparent way, very much interesting in consensus building and what that means in the or the web-enabled world. So you dealing with mainly contract, how contracts are written and put together and how specifications are. So you, are you, are you dealing more with the written component of the industry or is it? That's right. That's right. So my, uh, Barbell was born out of a project that we did with Highways England. Highways England in the UK run the, the motorway network. They have a suite of standards called Design Mining for Roads and Bridges. When we first got a hold of it in 2016, it was 12,000 pages long, 500 documents, and 15 years out of date. And we, we really had a, we had two and a half years to completely revise the whole document set. And one of the reason I was involved was to future-proof it for advances in IT. That was the uh, the slogan that went alongside the business case. We went and spent quite a bit of money bringing it up to probably the most advanced set of construction standards for for the infrastructure sector in the world. And really, what what it came down to is you've got to get your house in order before you can digitise. And these messy documents that had four or five paragraphs where 15 requirements would be all tangled up with each other. It was very difficult to know what was a requirement, what was advice, what was just there for information. And so Barbell is really about giving a lot of clarity to the way that contract specifications are written, helping people negotiate contracts more efficiently. But ultimately, we store documents in a digital format. Every sentence gets its own global UID so that APIs can reference content out. We don't move files around. We we move content around. We, We manage content at the the sentence level rather than at the the document level so it's really about kind of an evolved approach to version control and and collaboration and how different people can work on documents in in different ways and bring them together to to get something that's greater than than we can achieve at the moment that's fascinating because i mean if you think about the well the years that people have been talking about the digital transition of construction and yet the very the very thing that drives construction is the contracts (laughs) and they they are, they are very static, paper-based documents at the moment, and as, you, and as you said, very, very outdated. That's interesting. And uh, you've written a bl- blog recently, and think, John, I think this is something you want to talk about. Uh, you know, about the the Internet of Construction and how you know the industry might progress beyond BIM. 
Yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. What do you mean by progressing beyond BIM? Yes. So, so as I said, I was quite involved with, with the BIM developments in the UK. I was part of the PAS 1192 Part 2 steering group at BSI, and I was involved with the implementation of BIM into several major infrastructure schemes uh, in the UK, both, both road and rail. And what I witnessed was some really good efforts based on technologies that were defined around what was available in 2012. And BIM Level 2 concept in the UK became the basis of the of BIM according to ISO 19650, which is the, the global approach to, to BIM. And what I was seeing was was kind of a disconnect between all the frameworks up until BIM according to 1950 were that there's BIM Level 1, BIM Level 2, BIM Level 3. And suddenly we'd stop talking about BIM Level 3 and what the future was because it was too difficult to grasp. And so what I've tried to do is reposition a vision for what BIM Level 3 might be by stop talking about BIM because BIM has become such a solid word in many sectors and actually start thinking about just a new concept for how we approach information, collaboration, and, and just the whole construction process, frankly, based on a new mindset, which is not about collaboration. It's about interoperability. It's not about humans doing rote work it's about automated services going off and doing things automatically where it's where it's sensible to do so it's not about waterfall project management methodologies it's about concurrent working iterative working that allows things to run a thousand times over based on the contributions of of all the skills and knowledge that's required so it's really just repositioning the way that we think about the future of digital construction taking us beyond where we are today and perhaps where we might be in 2035 2040 the digital construction, I mean, the, the the purpose of it, I suppose, is to get to a physical construction eventually mm-hmm. uh, and then to maintain and operate that that asset, whatever it may be for the future. And, you know, if you think about at the moment how how that physical asset comes to be through its life cycle, you know, it's it's quite a tedious process and there's a lot of rework happening all the time, you know, if you if you're interested in roads, I suppose you could take a bridge or something. You know, there would be a brief put together for the, the, the bridge. And as you said, that would be a written contract and a written document and a written specification. You know, there'd be some sort of concept design put together, which would go through a number of iterations until a, a concept was approved and a feasibility for the bridge was accepted. You know, then it would go through another iteration of developing a scheme design, which could get planning permission and building control uh, approval, and then another iteration <laughs> to yeah. put some technical information together in order to get a price from somebody to build it, and then another intera- iteration to actually be able to construct and assemble that bridge, Yeah, and then another iteration of capturing all the as-built information, because invariably something would have changed during the construction of it, Yeah, and that gets thrown over to the client at the end. And then, of course, as the uh, asset gets maintained and operated, things keep changing. That thing's really static in mm-hmm. you know, in the built environment. So how do you see that improving? I mean, do we reverse engineer or the, the, do those stages stay the same? Or? I mean, the, the concept of how do you go from idea to completion and, and through to the, to the life of the asset, I think, is, is kind of fundamentally sound. The challenge is how much waste is there during that process? How how much delay is there going from conceptual design, which is a really creative activity? It's about understanding a whole host of trade-offs that you need to make, whether that's stakeholder, whether it's environmental, whether it's technical business case, business operating models, etc. And so that that creative design needs to be based on both 
kind of human understanding of the problem, but also we can do like million, a million iterations that allow you to trade off all those things and see all those different uh, tensions and see what comes out as a, as an, as a potential output. Uh, and obviously like the, the, the things like public consultation, bringing people along the journey, et cetera. But the, the challenge I think is about how does, how do currently the, the architect and the, the structural engineer and the electrical engineer and the mechanical engineer, all these different roles are waiting on each other for information and each of their activities takes time. And what we know is that an awful lot of that information, that those activities that take place are quite automatable. And what we then have is these very long feedback loops whilst one profession waits for the other profession to bring their outputs. The more that we can automate those individual discrete tasks that, that each each profession needs to do, the quicker those feedback loops are and therefore the more we can optimize and the quicker we can get towards the solution that we need so that the, the, the iteration is actually something that can be leveraged when things are efficient but when things aren't efficient it's something you absolutely want to avoid uh, but if if imagine that the the architect and the structural engineer could exchange information five times an hour rather than once a week on, on a friday when the when the, the things get uploaded to the the document management system we could see so much so much more creative solutions to problems. And is that because the way we're exchanging information at the moment is through these sort of whole models of, you know, of thousands of components and you, you, you have to wait until that model is at a sufficient stage of development before you know, it's worth exchanging with somebody else to, to look at. You know, just that concept of I've got, to get, I've, got, I've got to get my model complete and I've got to, to a point – before I'm willing to share it with other people, and it's yeah, it's in, and in for in order for it to look complete, it should uh, have so much of the work done, and, and that's yeah. why people are waiting. Instead I mean, I think of figuring out a small, you know, we could exchange. I'm just just thinking aloud now, but take that bridge. You know, if we say we could say let's let's make a decision on the lights. You know, that's just one component of a bridge is the the street lights. Um, let's talk about street lights and agree those. And you know, like don't let's not wait until the whole bridge and all the barriers and all the signs and all the lights and everything's complete before we exchange information and assess it and analyze it. Yeah, and I think there's there's a few interesting things there, Ralph. The first the first bit is the assumption that we're that it's a human that's going to receive that information when it's when it's made available to them. And actually, what we you know, if we if we have better interoperability between between engineering systems that allow one to interpret the other and and to optimize between them, actually, that we can take we can take the human out of the loop for for that automatable stuff. You know, uh, whatever it might be, there might be parameters in which you can let's take lights. You know, the, the placement of the lights might be arbitrary. It's that the, the there's enough lighting given to the to the bridge deck so that it's safe to use. Actually, does a human need to be part of that process or not? Well, there might need to be a creative element to it at some point. But actually, if the structural members are moving around, all that needs to, all that needs to be known is that the structural members are in a location and can a, can a, uh, a compliant design be produced where the lighting is where the, is also installable? Mm. Um, I think imagining that that uh, that information is you're right. I think there's this real thing about getting it ready to share it because you're going to be judged by your peers. But actually, it's about getting that information at, in an individual level ready for the next set, the next activities. And that's where your exchange information requirements become really granular and allow the next the next set of actions to be automatically triggered when that information is made available rather than when a package is shared and, and the, next, the person become, makes themselves available. Mm. 
the other the other aspect that I think is kind of uh, really important in the in the internet construction idea is I don't think I use the word exchange of information at all. I think I say that the data become the information becomes available on the internet of construction, and an API can pull that information when it's needed, and processes can get triggered automatically when 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 certain cases are met. So, for instance, the exchange information requirements are satisfied. That allows the next process in the in the in the chain to kick off, and that might pull information that that rapidly iterates and bounces between 20 different microprocesses, as I call them, that bring it all together. And I'd be really interested to speak to John and get his view on this, for, because of the we had a bit of debate about what a container is, and um, and I think it's a really important aspect of of what what happens in the future, because I really feel like that the, the concept of a common data environment is going to become more and more a legacy function that, that provides the audit trail, that provides the ledger of how things were transacted, not necessarily the place where you go to for the data. Um, it becomes a, a, just a, a list of where, what information is available and where you can access it, where you can pull the information from. So, yeah, I think that concept of, of what is a container, what is a, it's really going to have to change, like literally at the object level, the individual element. Or maybe the volume, or maybe the maybe it is the whole site, but well, uh, it will change. It, maybe even down to the parameter mm, level. Absolutely. So, so as you're doing in Babel, you know, where you're taking complex documents and you're sort of bringing it right down to the sentence level. You know, so each sentence has a, a life of its own, if you like. In these complex models of the future, you could say that every parameter of every object you know, would have a life of its own. So Definitely. so there's a tier of containers. You know, there's there's the overall model which contains a lot of objects and which mm-hmm. contain a lot of parameters which so you can get quite granular. And I think that sort of automated you know computers working with millions of data points is is a very feasible thing. Humans are working with a million data points isn't is not a <laughs> feasible thing at all. Absolutely. Yeah, what do you think, John? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation, obviously. Um, for like my perspective is certainly grounded by the existing way that information is exchanged between different stakeholders on the project today. And I believe that we need to start with the problem set at hand. And that starts with our architects, engineers, contractors exchanging documents. And that's why I'm so zoned in on documents. I'm not a lover of documents. I really want to get down to our object level where every parameter, like you say, Ralph and, and Tom, like you're doing with your sentences in Barbell, bar- have attaching a unique identifier to them and moving those through the life cycle of the project. But I just don't feel that the industry is there yet. And the reason, I suppose, is that none of our contracts are saying you must deliver, uh, you know, this like they're not being specific to the point that the information that stakeholders have to have to deliver that we can actually make that deliverable via you know objects yeah. if you like sorry but and, and one of the things that I, I put forward in the blog is that the role of the bim manager or changing to be moving from being an information manager to being a systems architect and actually as you start to define the construction project in terms of its processes in terms of its inputs and its outputs those those exchange information requirements become emergent because you say well in order for the structural engineer to do their job they need this information from these from these other people yeah. um, and 
you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the beauty of being, of writing a paper and not actually working in, in the software itself is that I can just paint a vision for the future and, and I completely appreciate where you're coming from, John. But isn't yeah, the, so the professionals to define the project. You know, if you're an architect, that's your role to define the architectural vision and you know, what the project is going to be. If you're an engineer, it's your role to define the, the you know, the structural performance of the project or if you're a services engineer it's your role to define the yeah when i say architecture i'm thinking of systems architecture uh rather than the the actual architecture of of the asset so so thinking and we get so tripped over these words that that have been misused or reused by by the military and others um that have come from uh the built-in the built environment i think i think one of the other things i pick up ralph on that one is is how one of the major barriers to BIM adoption, in my in my view, is how transparent the technology is. Uh, that we we suddenly ask architects to understand how to interpret Uniclass and how to interpret all these naming conventions that are used across across the whole the spectrum, and even even down to exchange information requirements. These these things are, are very digit technical. It's a new discipline. It's a new skill. We have to translate. If someone if one project is using say Uniclass, another is using a client's proprietary naming convention another is using omniclass another is this we have to reinvent we have to reconceive and i think what the technology should be doing is being very hidden behind in the same way that you do your internet banking you don't know what the internet the, the banking protocols are doing behind the scenes but they're whizzing around exchanging data with with whatever it needs with the regulator with the with the different banking systems these are all protocols in the same way that i imagine for the internet of construction that become hidden and be and aren't visible at the point of use allowing architects just to be architects and mechanical engineers just to be mechanical engineers without having to understand that pr underscore one underscore 52 underscore 53 is is a pipe that might not be correct. Probably isn't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what you're saying, Tom, is that we need to create a clear separation between the systems architects who design these processes and implement them systematically to connect all these different services. We need to essentially separate that role from the existing industry. And that role would be a provision of an infrastructure system, which would essentially be this Internet of Construction in which projects can operate at the maximum efficiency and people that are trained to be architects and engineers and contractors can be architects, engineers and contractors without needing to worry about all of the, the depths of problems and knowledge and uh, things that are required for system architecture and, That's right. and the implementation of that. But I'd slightly yeah. disagree with that because one of my bugbears about software in the AEC sector is it's designed and built by people who have no idea how the industry works <laughs> Yeah, as an architect. You know, so just be careful when you separate those, I th- those I think, two I think, things too, too much where you end up with IT people trying to impose something on an industry that... Course. has a very particular way in which it works and there's there's a product management thing here Ralph you're absolutely yeah. right that what we but but I think that it's it's currently the wrong way that if mm. I want to get my my bim model to interoperate with another trades bim model I have to understand how they've done done things and I think those those interoperability aspects should be hidden from the mm. user they should just work they should just be seamless yeah um, that part we, I agree with. we recently had a, a user experience designer join us at Marble and she doesn't know at all how any how computers work, but what she does understand is how to understand user needs, how to translate 
the problems that users have into designs for an application that the engineers can then interpret and turn into software code. And I, I was just fascinated by this because I think as an engineer myself, I just need to know how everything works. So therefore, I'm at Barbell, I'm the CEO, I'm the product manager, I've done loads of coding myself, I'm also the user, I'm also this. And actually, for, for Ellie, her role is to be the user experience specialist. And she doesn't need to know how the software works because we have software specialists that know how to build software. And the more we can, I think, approach this this thing. So we say, well, look, the architect doesn't need to know how the BIM system is thinking. It just works for them. But there is a translator required that can that can turn the architect's needs into something that works the, the way the architect needs it to be. For me, ISO 19650 seems to be the playbook for BIM on projects. That, that's, that's how I understand it. What this playbook is made up of is a set of processes in which stakeholders can engage with one another in a digital way, exchange information, etc. I completely agree with both Ralph and, and yourself, Tom, that we need a separation of these roles. Um, but I equally agree with Ralph saying that we almost need this to be tightly integrated with each of the stakeholder organizations so that you know, we don't have a software developer build something completely irrelevant to the industry. Well, if, um, if a software developer wants to build something completely irrelevant to the industry, yeah. <laughs> it just won't succeed, right? So it's not, it's not yeah. a problem. The systems architect, the way that you describe the evolution of the BIM manager into the systems architect, I think that, or I suppose the question for you would be, do you believe that ISO 19650 can be the playbook for the internet of construction? Can it be the start point in which BIM managers take abstract the processes from ISO 19650 into their set of building blocks. Let's say, for instance, we introduce some visual programming language that can uh, engage with the different APIs belong to the different solutions that everyone is using. And they actually have the tooling to be able to set up these processes, to be able to download a file from one software, send it to another service to convert it to another format, send it to another service to uh, slightly alter the format, and then send it to another project management solution in which the team would eventually receive the information. If we had that, do you think that that's a likely scenario in which we see that 19650 would evolve from or evolve to. And how do you, how do you, how do you, what's your vision there? So, so I think 19650 is uh, a brilliant foundation from which we move because we do stop talking about BIM level two in, in, in the UK and we start moving forward into just thinking about the information delivery lifecycle. And it, the 19650 is quite neutral in terms of the technology approach uh, that, that's taken that needs to, and it is a I think as you say John a, a stepping stone into the next the next level um, the challenge is that it's trying to be both things it's trying to be it's trying to be readable or or maybe it's implementation the practitioner is supposed to be able to understand what it says as well as the technologist and what I what I think we need is a a, a clearer layer between what resources are practitioner facing and what resources are, tech, are the, the technologists facing and actually having two sets of guidance that sit alongside each other or two sets of standards that interoperate with themselves and making it clearer that what we don't we don't expect someone's role to be one day be a design manager next day be a bin manager and next day be a structural engineer 
that these are different skill sets that actually are professions and, and skills in their own right. And we, f- we find people in much clearer jobs where they're not trying to jump between all these different roles. And then, you, then product, as we said, product management and comms and stakeholder engagement becomes very important. So ISO 19650 has a UX problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, I mean, has this UX is the title right? for the talk. <laughs> yeah. That's it. I, mean, I, I, I started the paper off with four observations, and I think the breadth of what BIM is trying to do is 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 a big challenge. But yeah, that whole that the the systems architecture of BIM is far too transparent. The UX is dreadful for anyone that's that's trying to learn it, and we need experts in doing it and we need experts in being construction practitioners and their different skill sets and at the moment it's not it's not normalized properly at the moment so another another thought that i wanted to drill into obviously 19650 talks about interoperability and the exchange of information through its life cycle it says that metadata and information should be exchangeable between the solutions as it as it evolves throughout throughout its life cycle you have preempt the question john I th- yeah. things like the building smart data dictionary are going to be absolutely essential. I think um, ideas like there's there's uh, the W3C, the World Web Consortium, have lots of technologies defined for mapping classification schemes, naming schemes, taxonomies, ontologies, whatever you want to each other. And the, and the Building Smart Data Dictionary definitely provides a basis because it says, you say this, I say this. And there might be need for like internally we call it a this and externally it's called this and it doesn't matter because it interoperates. And the more we have these schemas that map to each other, the more this becomes possible. But absolutely, the data and metadata and everything should become interoperable, but it needs to be translatable rather than necessarily. But one of the big evolutions and steps that I see in the this internet, internet of construction is a shift from exchanging information to making information available. And I I would describe it almost as a paradigm shift for the way that the information technology operates in the construction industry, whereby everyone holds their own data and they have an access layer, an API in front of them, where certain users with certain roles and certain permissions on the project can access their data and that's predefined in their interface ultimately do you think iso 19650 is going to go in that direction and where you know like are we talking five years ten years where or how do you think how do you think 19650 is going to evolve there are we going to have new parts that say okay there's definitely need to be a need for guidance Looking back to where the common, the concept of the common data environment comes from and the development that went into BS 1192-2007, it was never engineered such that it had to be a single document management system or a number of document management systems. What it says is there is an environment whereby data is available to the commonly if we if we turn it round, and that might be APIs. And so the I mean the metadata, the suitability codes, that the naming conventions. I'm not. I think that is probably going to go by the wayside, quite frankly. Or, or it becomes an archival uh, function because it's the the ledger says this this information was available. Yeah, I mean I I, I it is a it is a paradigm shift, but I don't think it's fundamentally changes that information has a suitability. That information is made available to certain people that it's made available to one set of stakeholders, then another set of stakeholders, and then, the, you know, all the permissions. It's, it's, 
the same ideas. It's just that we're not restricted. We're not having to teach architects how how to use arch docs on one project. Sorry, no, no, not Ralph. That's not one, is it? We're not whatever, you know, yeah, whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah. Uh, you're learning project wise this week and you're learning Acon X the next week and you're learning and mm. you're stuck by restricted in your ways of working as an architect. I can't work how I want to work because I've got to use this document management system on this project. Now, the architect should be working the way they want to work and the structural engineer should be working the way they want to work, the way that's efficient and is systematized and really fast. And then people could just pull and pull and access the information via a defined API. But you also need a defined data model to go with that. Right. So you need oh, to have. Yeah. So, and this comes to our point about, well, this is a project that Ralph and I have been working on um, around uh, an open information container initiative. That's what it's the project working name. It's essentially set, setting up a common taxonomy or classification for the common types of information that's exchanged on a project. So, for example, an RFI would have its own taxonomy. A safety incident would have its own. A drawing would have an, have its own. So essentially, what we're what we've um, identified is that the UniClass 2015 project management tables and the um, what was the other table, Ralph? The, the, the there's form, two tables. Form of information. Yeah, forms of information. Yeah, yeah. in that you have a classification code. You have no definition for what. Or sorry, in that you have a classification code, so you can essentially reference the name of the form of information or project management uh, piece of information. We have no way of describing each of those. And in all of the common project management systems, you've, you've mentioned a few already, you have all of you have these vendors describing these common pieces of information in different ways. It would be our view that if we could standardize those um, so we could get some sort of uh, global reference available for an RFI and for example a client or whoever is owner of the data environment could say look all, all stakeholders if you're going to engage in this project with any tool or solution your solution must describe this form of information or this project management piece of information like this. Mm -hmm. And what this will afford is us to exchange these information containers throughout the life cycle of this, of the, of the solution. Yeah. Yeah. Now this is, I don't, yeah. I don't think the ISO 19650 is the problem. Like it describes the management and exchange of containers. And, and it also says that a container can be a number of things. It could be a, a folder of files. It could be a file. It could be a set of objects or, or layers within a file. It, you know, it could be a paragraph within a document. So it's it's quite open in in its description. I, I just I think the problem is the granularity that people are used to in the industry is files. You know, so you get a big file with lots of layers or you get a big file with lots of sections and paragraphs <laughs> you get a, a big file with yeah. you know lots of uh, bim ob objects in them and within with, within each object an object within a model is also a container and, and within each object there's a whole set of parameters and you know i think just the human mind can't sort of grasp that we we wouldn't manage things at a very granular level because previously that was very difficult 
So take a specification. Yes. Like a specification document is made up of sections, which is made made up of a set of paragraphs, which is made up of sentences. And in what what it sounds like you're doing, Tom, is you sort of digitizing that to a very granular level, where you can each sentence has a life of its own. You know, and a, a group of sentences make up a paragraph, assume, and a, you know, a set of paragraphs makes up a section of the document, and the sections make up the document. I think that's the problem. What you're doing is effectively a, set, a group of containers uh, of a, a specific type and manage the, managing that in a digital process, so exactly the way ISO 19650 says. I, 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 I completely agree. I yeah. Think. I, ISO 19650 does support support this notionally. The common data environment talks about containers purposefully. It doesn't talk about files. But then it's uh, John, you you make the, the point. How does this translate into something that's actually implementable? How yeah. do we how do we get to this point? And standards are the answer. Standardization of of everything is of anything that relates to interoperability is going to be the key. I don't. I, it's going to be very messy on the way there. But if we look at how the World Wide Web has evolved. This, there is, like, there's just loads of standards out there and some succeed and some sink. And the, the challenge is getting enough resources behind a standard that mm. you can, that you can get some, you can build enough support, you can build enough consensus, you can, you can get enough people at the table to say this is a problem that's big enough for us. And frankly, actually just the effort of the work to, to decide. We, we had, we went through a similar exercise this summer. We've been supporting a group called Construction Knowledge Task Group and they're, a, a consortium of the the biggest publishers of knowledge resources in the UK. So it's got the likes of the Construction Innovation Service, there's BSI, there's Designing Buildings Wiki, there are the major professional institutions, there are a few contractors, manufacturers, consultants. And we had exactly the same thing, John. We were, we were essentially saying, how do we make, at the moment, there's no way of identifying a resource as a construction knowledge resource. And so Google, the only way to find anything is by Google. And Google won't find things that are behind firewalls, but people are trying to protect their IP and therefore there's this real. So we wanted to standardize the metadata around knowledge and make it discoverable. Mm. And we looked at the Uniclass form of information table and the project management tables to say, well, how do we classify knowledge? And we found out that there was no way of doing it. So we had to build our own standard. It's not a BSI standard. It's not an ISO standard. It's not an MBS. It's not an anyone. It's these these mm. 15 organizations that have got together and agreed. Well, in the UK, that's how we're going to do it for these types of resources. And it took some work. We got a grant from the Lloyd's Register Foundation to do it. It was supported by the Open Data Institute as well. And it was about six months worth of work. But what we've got is something that's really powerful and hopefully will be adoptable by other people. Um, but, but it does need work and it does need. And, and there's, uh, there's, there's also a bit of a camp that says we need to force into the existing standards. And if the existing standards are, don't work, market forces need to apply. Yeah. And we need to let them die. And what's happening with that work? Is it being opened up to the industry to contribute to or comment yeah, so on? Or? It's all hosted on our software, and which is an open source project that allows anyone to come along, raise an issue, propose a change, be involved. The, the group is convened by um, Gregor Harvey, who's the founder of Designing Buildings Wiki. Um, and anyone that wants to be involved is very welcome to be. We're looking for technology providers to, to build search engines and build business models on top of on top of the standards as much as publishers to publish their metadata in that way. And what, what the process you went through, I mean, is, is there something that the, the AEC sector could learn? You know, how did you get it started? How did you? Sure. So, did, so Barbell has 
we developed our own methodology for standardization. It's pretty much based on any kind of consensus building framework. We call it open consensus. Um, one of the things that one of the founding ideas was my frustration with the BSI and ISO process, which is very much behind closed doors. And uh, the definition of consensus is no sustained opposition, not everyone agreeing and defending this, this output. And so what we what we try and do is how do we actually get to consensus being something where everyone does support this document? And so we have a framework that we follow, a four step methodology. It's Publishes, we publish it under open Creative Commons so that people can use it. And yeah, it's about convening people, bringing them together, defining the goals, setting a strategy, agreeing what the outcomes look like, and only then starting to work on the technical draft uh, because you've already got people behind the vision of it. And I think this is, you know, coming back to the internet of construction or, or whatever else, it's getting people behind the vision. Everyone signed up to the vision first yeah. before saying, here's a draft, please adopt it. Now, there are lots of web standards which have gone completely opposite way around. It's been a geek in, a, in their bedroom writing a technical standard that they've used for their own product and they've put it on GitHub and others have adopted it and that's another model. But you've got a discovery issue and I think for construction for AEC, we need to be more consensus driven because there's, far, there's so many stakeholders involved. In the project John mentioned earlier that we, we sort of initiated, we sort of imagined the sort of tier, tiered approach to granularity where we started at the exchange of files. So that's, as John said, that's where we are today. You know, we, we're exchanging big files with lots of content in them, but that's just what people do. So let's start there. And we sat down and we sort of came up with 140, I think it was, John, sort of parameters of information you'd need to understand about a file to give that file proper meaning. And yeah, we just kind of listed those and had a, had a podcast discussion about them with a group of people. Uh, but that's the highest at the highest level, then the next step would be to say, well, how many different types of files would there be? So if you take the information table in Uniclass, I think they have a hundred different types of files or forms of information. You know, now is that comprehensive enough or, or not? So I suppose that's a question to be answered. And then there's the big amount of work really is to look at each of those hundred file types and say, well, what what do you need to know about an RFI? What do you need to know about a, a safety issue? What do you need to know about a... You've almost given the success criteria. In order for it to be considered an RFI, it has these attributes. Yeah. It contains this information. And then, you know, it turns it on its head a little bit in that sense. Um, it's not an RFI if it doesn't do these things. Yeah. Um, and it could also do these things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's... No one is ever happy with a classification system or a taxonomy. It's never, it never meets everyone's needs or everyone's view of the world. The, the key thing is it's consensus building and making sure that enough people who represent all the stakeholders are, are brought along and will we'll support it, will defend it. With, with the construction knowledge types that we came up with, we started saying, well, ideally we want 10 to 15. We ended up with 45 in one draft. It went down to about 17. Then it, it kind of settled at around 22-ish. And it was really a, a, a lot of time on Zoom. <laughs> and um, we, using um, using a lot of voting and using a lot of, but not voting yes or no, but like, let's get a temperature of the room. Okay, how do people feel about this? Has anyone got any strong objections to this? Okay, why? what are your objections? Okay, well, let's let's reimagine it and jumping between things. It takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, but... Uh, mm. What, what people came up with they're excited about. And practically speaking, how is the construction knowledge, how is that used practically? Could we use it, for instance, to describe bodies of information within our organization? Or would it be used, for example, if we wanted to 
push forward our this project of the open information containers or should we or would perhaps your other methodology for pushing an open standard be more suitable what what would be our options there so it would be great if whatever you're producing gets published with the metadata that comes under discoverable construction knowledge it's uh so there's two the acronyms overlap a little bit but um discoverable construction knowledge is a data spec it uses it's built on Dublin Core. It leverages Uniclass. It leverages I don't know if schema features, but there's there's a, a there's a few open data standards that we built on. We've added about five of our own fields that relates purely to construction, and we've come up with a knowledge type classification, which is about twenty odd types. You can you can definitely use that if you're producing a standard. There is a knowledge type called standard. There might be one in Uniclass, but it's not quite right because there are other things that could be called you could use as well there's guidance there you know we we looked at what's the anyway we kind of went around the house and like what what does guidance mean and how does this relate to that and so we got to a point where we think there's no ambiguity even though the terms aren't great which i think is where you need to be so so yeah the open consensus model is the the model that we would i'd advocate for designing standards it's all about being open source it's all about bringing people in involving people making sure you're setting, you're making it very clear what the goal is before you start drafting. I think one of the big challenges when you present a fate to complete to people, they instantly get their backs up because you haven't taken them on the journey. And as long as you keep taking people on a journey, what are we trying to achieve here? What's the end goal? Let's let's write quite a clear scope around this. Let's say what we're not going to try and achieve. If we set a vision and then we can set like a strategy around it and phase one is this, phase two is that, then we'll go, okay, so let's Let's decide, are we going to use RDF? Are we going to base it on mm-hmm. Uniclass? Are we going to base it on this? Are we going to build on something that already exists? Are we going to create something new? Then you can start drafting. If you're familiar with Building Smart, are you, are you familiar with Building Smart and their internal processes? I am not very familiar with Building Smart. Okay, so it does sound quite similar. Uh, you propose a group of you come together, you put together a project proposal that gets accepted by Building Smart. Um, it's made into an official working group and a group comes together. It gets some funding behind it and um, stakeholders, vendors, system integrators, industry people can come into the room and all it's all about exactly what you're saying, consensus building and essentially um, making some sort of an implementation around the idea in which can be elevated then from building smart into ISO and that's that's the journey in a nutshell yeah. that you're that a, a new idea will come from um, essentially ground up to standard. One of the key differences that I see and you know, something that I've been thinking about is this open source model. Would we be better off rather than pushing our knowledge into this closed ecosystem, which I call ISO, where things aren't very accessible, you pay, you pay for access to, you know, whatever piece of knowledge it is. I get that they need money. I suppose that's outside the concept or the scope of the conversation. But I think it is yeah. really important to the conversation. Um, okay. I mean, absolutely. I, I think the idea that you get volunteers together, take their IP and license it back to them at £150 a document is, is <laughs> frankly nonsense. I'm um, glad you said it. It's, um, <laughs> I mean, one of the key things, I think one of the key things about Open is, first of all, it allows people to participate and you you accept all the stakeholders are willing to come to the table. You do listen to them. But the other part of being open source is about being transparent. And one of the reasons open source software is so successful is because people can poke it. People can interrogate it. People can go, 
is this has this got a virus has this got malicious aspects to it has this got and i think for, for aec standards the equivalent is has autodesk pushed this in their direction has has a vendor mm. influenced this in a certain way and at the moment the, the challenge with the the closed door process of of iso is that you don't know who came to the table and who's and the the fact that you have yeah. to travel the fact that you have to do this voluntarily like means that the big boys are going to protect their position and so for smaller players you and the the, the challenge with iso is like it's, it's an edict and actually it's not like these are voluntary standards and we can choose to take them or we can leave them and actually competition in standards is really important as well and actually allowing people to come together and say we're going to throw out iso 19650 we're going to write our own version of it that's better that's transparent i'm not saying 19650 by the way and i know there'll be people get their backs up when i say that but it's, it's what we're talking about today but uh, but because because it comes from iso it must be right but actually i have no idea who's involved with that i can't poke it i can't see the the comments that were made i can't see how decisions were taken um, I can't see any of the things that would tell me whether this is actually appropriate for my or actually stitching myself up and, and protecting the status quo because the people can afford to send someone to Guadeloupe to, to attend a, a committee meeting. You've hit the nail on the head, Tom. I'm, I'm completely with you. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are also, you know, getting riled up with their headphones on thinking about <laughs> An open source ISO 19650. I but, mean, that's that's certainly the mecca for. I, I think it's important, really. There, there is a key point about financing because mm-hmm. these projects do take money to run. Sure. But I think knowing who's funded it is also is also really important. And if you look at the JavaScript Foundation, if you look at any web technology, they're all open source public foundations that are sponsored by companies. But again, you can see who's involved, you can see what their interests are and you can choose to take it or leave it. I also think there's a lot of inefficiencies in, in the existing way of working, which is why we've got solutions like Barbell being developed that allow people to work more efficiently without the cost of collating review comments and, and all that bit. We just take the admin away and make it cheaper to do. But yeah, there is, I mean, the financial models need to be understood. But we have those, you know, I think that the PASs in the UK are sponsored documents it costs 50 grand to write a pass to get a pass through and the sponsor is on the front cover and you can but because it's published by bsi it becomes official even though it's sponsored by a commercial interest and i think the thing is creating a system where a standard gets developed and published and you can take it or leave it let's agree that we need to use a standard well let's choose the most appropriate standard and let the let the best ones win Final question from me. Is the open consensus like a culmination of your vision and hypothesis for how you believe standards should be developed from this point forward in the construction sector? Or what's your stance on that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It was that, so Barbell started as standards repo. We were going to be the world's yeah. repository for standards. Um, apparently, there's not a lot of money in standards, and therefore, we started to think about construction contracts. <laughs> but the technology is still the same thing. And, um, and this idea of GitHub being used to drive the development of technical standards in, in software, can we apply that to people without having to learn how Git works, which is software version control that, that requires you to understand, use DOS interfaces to, to push things back and forth. Uh, can we do that in a way that doesn't require you going through that learning curve? And actually, John, I will say that there are people using our tool to develop BIM ISOs uh, as well. So I think you can do you can do it at different stages, but I, the more open, the more transparent we can be and the more inclusive we can be in the development of those standards, the more trust we can have in them. So where can we find out more information about this open consensus model? Is this something you facilitate through the Barbell platform or is this something in which is published on GitHub where we go to 
pick up as a set of documentation and run with or the, where do the documents make... aren't very complete but they are published on our platform yeah and so the and ideas are there and they, they mean that i've described pretty much the, the, the idea yeah. i mean i think building yeah. methods and tools behind them is going to be is going to be something i want to do it's something we try and body in our software it's not it's not exclusive to our software it's as i say with anything we we do for open consensus will be published under under creative commons license we are actually trademarking the term creative uh, open consensus that's not because we don't want people to use it we just don't want people to misuse it like bim is misused <laughs> What sort of question I had after that, but uh, in this future that you're imagining, the Internet of Construction, how are the lives of architects and engineers and contractors going to be different? I mean, as an architect, of all the tedious things I have to do, like a client says in their brief, they for a school, they want a classroom. Yeah, so I've got to go and do some some product manufacturers for all the elements that make up a classroom, whiteboards and furniture and fit out and lights and carpets and whatever <laughs> um put a classroom together get it approved yeah and go and collect all the information about all those components yeah. from the manufacturers at a point in time collate it all together and then send it off to a contractor to put a price price together yeah uh, he comes back with the wrong price of course and everything gets changed. You know, mm-hmm. the products I've selected get swapped out for cheaper products, and I've, I've given a task to compare the performance of the products that are being proposed to make sure that they're not too cheap or too nasty. You know, we don't end up in Grenfell territory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's the way things work. How how will this be different in your vision of a future of the Internet of Construction? Okay, will, so I, I will I be referencing manufacturer's information rather than replicating it? Uh, so let's play that through. Let's play that through. So you're an architect. So the architect's practice has changed. As an architect, your job is to worry about the architecture of the building or actually the architecture of buildings. So you'd be thinking about what does a school need to be? How does it need to perform? How does how does a school fulfill its function as an educational institution? There'll also be people in the architect's practice who are thinking about how do I turn that into programmatic knowledge? How do I turn that into systematic things that allow a trigger to come in and spit out an answer that embodies the knowledge you have as an architect? What would be produced to, so as a, you'll be consulting, you're producing a brief, you'll be producing a design. I think the contractor in this scenario is probably cut out of it, that the, there's going to be some sort of assembly organization. It, it might be, but in terms of the, 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 the actual product selection, you'll be defining a specification for a product and it will have really good specifications that are watertight and there'll be people bidding like people bid on Google ads automatically in auctions that say we can deliver the product that meets that specification for this price and you've got open competitions that are automatically run through routines. The contractor's job is purely to be a contractor in that their job is to be the assembler and to coordinate the activities on site based on a specification and a performance specification that's robust. The the kind of idea that there are gatekeepers, that there are effectively the contractor knows their mates who are who can supply chairs or whiteboards or whatever it might be, and they're bounded by the, the, the knowledge of their network, whether they're friends or not. Well, let's assume that it's completely fair and open. They're still bounded by the availability. We'll have a marketplace like Google Ads where people can just bid in on and the lowest price wins or the most 
whatever the lowest price for the performance specification, which is watertight, so we don't get a Grenfell scenario. Those products are certified by a body, so we can the, 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 the manufacturer will go and say, I've got these chairs, and the bidding platform will go to the certification body and verify at that point that those chairs meet that performance specification. And it all just, all that routine, all that tedium, all that delay just goes away. And we know that the school meets the needs for the educators and for the, the, the children and it delivers what it will be and for the taxpayer it's at the most efficient price point so everybody wins my life as an architect is much better i'm not doing tedious repetitive tasks yeah except for the people <laughs> and, that, um, yeah, i'm spending my time on the, on the things i really enjoy which is you know the design and how things come together rather than trying to describe things that have already been destri- described by other people who make those products. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. Can't wait to get there. <laughs> we'll, get there. we'll get there. But it needs people like you guys and John making these, you know, just taking the plunge. Don't worry about the fact that there's these these standards body that exist. Just get get the people around the table who are going to take it through and, and just start doing it and just start publishing it and publish version one and get the feedback and then publish version two and get the feedback. Standards need to be, there needs to be a level of standards, which is why we do this consensus making up front. But equally, we just need to get going and we need to not worry about these institutional artifacts. If it's good enough, it will be insurable. I had one more question and I wanted to ask it's a little bit off track, but we we want to talk about innovation on this podcast and how how can we get innovation to to happen you you were one of the co-founders of a group called dot built environment and understand from that 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 was one of the aims of that organization was was to you know sort of promote and foster innovation is that a, that's about 4 or 5 years old that that group mm-hmm. what what have been your experiences out of that that effort what has worked and what maybe hasn't worked you know what have you found uh, exciting what have you found frustrating um <laughs> so yeah how, how, do, how do we make innovation work that's a yeah, question yeah dot built environment was born out of the bim 2050 group which was from the construction industry council in the uk um and we were all brought together as a representative from each institution professional institution who in the body was 15 of us and it was one of the most exciting enthusiastic uh, amazing spaces to be because People were taken away from the commercial setting and they were just allowed to, enthusiastic people were just allowed to talk and exchange ideas. And what we wanted to do with Dot Built Environment was create a movement and create a, an, yeah, an environment really where, where, where innovation can flourish. And unfortunately what happens is we all got jobs or all kind of we got promoted and we, we kind of grew up a little bit and families and, and bits got in the way and, and, and the, the digital twin fan club is is kind of a child of dot built environment i don't know if you've come across those guys but they're there it's the same people um i mean what i what i think we needed what we were trying to do was trying to get a co-working space that allowed anyone working in the built environment to work together and it was just about getting putting places where people can exchange ideas and just just talk to each other we also wanted to create seed funds so that people could hackathons are great but how do we take that from hackathon to the next stage and actually creating an, again an environment where people can just take six months out or three months out to work on an idea and build it up to the next stage maybe go through the whole business incubation exercise or, or whatever but it was really about there's lots of great ideas there's lots of people coming through who are getting really jaded and frustrated and, and some of the younger members of the group were like 
I'm 22, 23. I've been in the industry four years and I'm fed up. And we were thinking this is nonsense because we need people like this that are just going to get. Uh, frankly, I think most of them moved on now. Actually, they don't work in the in the sector anymore. Salaries are higher and the jobs the jobs less stressful uh, in other industries. And we need uh, an environment where that that feels fresh, that feels different, um, that feels less adversarial, that allows people to to bounce ideas off them, that allows people the time to think through ideas. That's what it was all about. And I think we've all done, gone on to do quite interesting things, actually. And we're all it was it was a great stepping stone for ourselves. And I know that Henry is trying to get something going as well with with kind of a new generation of that. And we're, we're all giving him his support, our support. Fantastic. Well, we've come to the hour and probably talk for another hour if we wanted to. Sure. <laughs> but uh, any final comments, John, or any questions? I'd like to thank Tom. Uh, the talk has been really inspirational. You may have inspired me to write version one of the Open Information Container Initiative paper. Let's see. That could be on the way. Put it in the oven. You, John, where's it being documented? That's my, my, yeah, my yeah. question. Every time on Twitter you talk about it, so where's it being documented? Publish it. Publish it. Put yeah, it under yeah. MIT. Put it in Creative Commons Zero. Just put it out there. Let people use it. Don't yeah. And just be transparent. And people will see that it's useful and they'll get involved. Great. Tom, any parting words of wisdom for the, the audience? I just think that people should just get on with things. And if you've got an idea, publish it. And I think there's just a general industry inertia around we need a project initiation plan for any piece of work that gets done. And I see so many working groups get together and say, well, we've written this plan and we've, we've, we've gone for the permission seeking from different organizations. And actually, the more that we can do, just publish it, put it on the Internet, write it on Medium, put it on Barbell, put it on, it on Twitter. AC Hive. Put it on AEC Hive, put it on the Digital Twin Hub, let people see it, let people take the idea and run with it. Or if it tell you it's rubbish, if it's rubbish or there's a reason that often there's a reason why things are the way they are. But that's not to say they shouldn't be challenged. Um, but but you, you're going to learn in that process. And I think that's that's the big takeaway. Mm. Publish, publish, publish. What's this old saying? It's better to ask forgiveness than ask for permission. <laughs> Just get on and do it. Nothing, quite frankly. <laughs> And we often, we often trip over ourselves by, by permission seeking. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Um, well, just from my side as well, I just want to say that was a fantastic talk. Thanks very much. Greatly appreciate your time. And we'll put some of your links in, in, in the podcast as well, at, uh, in the notes and, uh, hope people find you and work with Barbell and all the great things you're doing. Thank so, you very much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much.